Welcome back, Psychonauts. So today we are going to be talking about taking in and storing information. So let's just jump right into it. So we're going to be talking about some different processes when the whole stage of memory occurs. So the first memory process is called encoding. And this is basically just transforming um, information from the nervous system as we process it and encoding it into memory. So you're taking in your senses, basically. It's how we get our information through. So, so through hearing, sight, touch, taste, smell, um, basically just you getting this information. And then you are turning it into something usable. And as we encode this information, it goes into the second memory process, which is storage of this memory. So... Now, depending on how well it is stored depends on how much energy and effort it goes into actually encoding this information um, and the level of importance given to this information. Now, information can be stored for a few seconds or milliseconds for that matter or much longer. And we're going to be talking about that longer and long term and short term and all that. We'll get into that here in just uh, another minute or so, actually. So, anyhow. Um, after that, so we have the encoding, we have the storage, and now we have retrieval. So once that information is in storage, well, how do we get it out? Um, so it just depends how well the information is stored to begin with. Um, depends on how easy it is to bring back. So if it's encoded well with a lot of different um, kind of markers and it's indexed better, it's easier for us to bring back. And now also genetic background and past experiences can also affect memory as well. We'll get into some different parts of that later on. So um, next we're going to talk about three different areas of our memory. So we already mentioned that short-term, long-term, but we have sensory, short-term, and long-term memory. So let's talk about um, sensory memory first. This is going to be the shortest one. So our sight, our hearing, our touch, they actually can hold memory, but it, like the input is only held there for just a fraction of a second kind of thing. So um, that's one of the reasons that they say that eyewitness testimonies are absolutely atrocious because people's memory are very, very faulty. So there's actually a, a device that kind of shows this, a... I'm sorry, I'm going to mispronounce this so bad. Tachistoscope. Tachistoscope. T-A-C-H-I-S-T-O-S-C-O-P-E. Tachistoscope. I don't know. But it's this device that um, it, it presents you a picture for a very, very brief time, like a 20th of a second. And you see all these letters and numbers. And the average person can tell you about four to five of these items. And um, just the idea behind is George Sperling actually was the one who kind of said this. He said, look, he believed that the stimulus created by a visual image of these letters and stuff, it only holds for just a little bit, um, and it, it fades away pretty quickly. And this is referring to our sensory memory, um, and also sometimes called our iconic memory. And that is memory that holds visual information, and it holds for up to a second. So that's why you have to write them down really quick when you see one of those. Now our next one is short-term memory. And, and I'm betting most of these terms throughout this unit you've probably heard a little bit before. But a short-term memory, uh, it's very similar to RAM on a computer or um, random access memory. And it's just kind of temporary. Um, and this memory is exactly that. It's temporary until it is saved to the hard drive kind of thing. Um, I look at it like this. 
Um, RAM and um, is short-term memory, so your hard drives are your long-term memory. So if you think of your kitchen and you have a freezer and you have your pantry and your refrigerator, that holds a whole bunch of stuff. Now, if you want to make a meal, you get out those things. Well, you don't have room on your countertop to do everything. So the countertop is the short-term memory. It's just a little bit of stuff. If you want to hold on to it longer, you're going to have to put it in the freezer, the pantry, or the refrigerator into storage. So the counter space gets you know, built up pretty quick. So um, I guess another way to look at it is straight up with a computer. So whenever you open something on your computer, that's part of your RAM. You're, you're viewing an image, you're watching a video, you're using a computer program, playing a video game, whatever. Now, if you were say doing um, if you opened up your hard drive that has all of your videos all of your pictures all of your programs all of your video games all of your music every single thing and you opened all those things at once your computer would crash it's the same way kind of our brain there's no way for our brain to open up everything that we know in storage uh, into our short-term memory or our ram it's just our brain would not not have it kind of thing so, and that brings us to maintenance rehearsal. So, this information that we are talking about with our short term, um, we, we only have it for a little bit. And if we want to have it longer, this rehearsal part, we're going to have to do exactly that. We're going to have to rehearse it. We're going to have to practice it. It's like when you meet someone uh, for the first time, um, you know, we, we get a new, new name or something like that, and we say, hey, you know, nice to meet you, so-and-so. Hey, so-and-so, how was your weekend? Hey, so-and-so, why don't you come? Da, 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 da. The more you use it, you're going to be um, better off with it, and saying it out loud helps a lot with this. All right, now, speaking of things that kind of help out with remembering things, another process called chunking, and this is where you group items together to make them easier to remember. So if you get a long series of numbers, all right, we have trouble doing large numbers. We, on average, people do around seven numbers, uh, plus or minus two, and that's all we got. After that, we start getting confused. Uh, we'll mix ones up. Um, you know. So now, if we chunk them together, um, it is easier. If we find like a meaning in them, so like if I'm remembering a phone number and I see zero zero seven, I'm think. Oh, well, that's James Bond. That's an easy one to remember. Or if a number repeats itself, it's easy. Just I remember that number, and then I remember that it repeats itself. Um, we can also do this with different words like NASA, uh, National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Well, that's a lot easier to remember if I can just remember NASA. It kind of groups a whole bunch of words into smaller little bits. So now, that being said, even with chunking, storage is short-term memory, um, and, and short-term memory is just temporary. Um, it's available for like 20 to 30 seconds, and that's assuming there's no rehearsal. If you get a rehearsal, rehearsal you're going to remember it better. And uh, kind of building off of that before we, uh, we're, we're going to change gears here and get into long term in just a moment. But first I want to talk to you about the primacy recency effect. And when we're getting information, like you get 15 items in a grocery list, you're going to remember the first few because they're like you have more time to rehearse them and remember them. That's the primacy one. And you're also going to recall the last ones because those are still accessible in our short-term memory. That's the recency effect. And the middle ones, we kind of miss. It's because our attention is split between rehearsing the first ones and learning the new ones. So primacy, new, uh, the, the first ones, recency, the most recent ones. And when we're getting this information that we're, you know, it can also go into, and this is another facet of short-term memory, just so you guys understand, working memory. 
And we use this a lot when we're problem solving. And a component of working memory is executive attention component. And this basically just helps us to determine what type of information um, is relevant and what the short-term memory can access. Sometimes mine uh, falters a little bit if I'm thinking about something. I'm like, okay, I'm working on this math problem stuff. I was like, wait a minute, did I shut the garage door today? All of a sudden, my ability to focus on one thing, my brain is bringing up information that it really shouldn't be. Um, this, this type of memory, this working memory, is described as like a mental scratch pad of all relevant information of what we are working on kind of thing. Um, and when we no longer need it, it's replaced with something else like a whiteboard is wiped clean and the new information goes on it. All right, and that brings us to um, long-term memory. And this is basically the storage of information over an extended amount of time. And as far as we can tell, this type of memory is basically limitless. And so I'm going to talk to you guys about some different types of this kind of long-term memory and different parts of it. So we're going to talk about semantic memory. This is like uh, language, um, including the rules of language, words, meanings of words and stuff. And we share this knowledge uh, with other people who speak that same language. And we don't really need to think about it. Uh, I mean, I guess sometimes you do. you got to recall words and stuff. But it's just kind of, um, it's spoken memory. Uh, then we have episodic memory. And this is the memory of our own life. Um, and, you know, it's when you woke up this morning to where you are right now kind of thing. And this is all very personal things. Um, it's, you know, everything that's uh, of, of importance to us. And it is unique to each one of us as we have our own experiences and how we interpret the world around us. Our next one is declarative memory. This is information you can call forth consciously and use whenever you need it. So you have to think about it. So this is like facts and events. So it's you're just you know bringing it back up, just uh, trivia type stuff. Then we have procedural memory. Um, this one does not require any kind of, you know, like, thought at the moment. Um, it's just a, a collection of past learned, uh, learned experiences and things like that. So um, swimming, uh, driving, tying a tie, those kind of things. It's just, you know, you get this skill and then you just, after a while, I mean, you had to learn at some point, but it just becomes automatic to you. It's just like, oh, I'm going to go out and, you know, start swimming. Well, how do you swim? It's like, oh, I don't know. You, you, you just swim. It's, it's almost the more you do it, it becomes harder to explain to someone. I had to teach someone how to jump rope one time. And I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm like, well, you, you just you jump rope. That's like, how do you explain that to someone? You just, you just do it. You, you jump rope. So um, our next three here that we're going to be talking about are the three R's. And that's recognition, recall, and relearning. So recognition, this is memory retrieval in which a person identifies objects, ideas, a situation as one that they have experienced or not experienced before. They can recognize um, that. It's usually recognizing that they have experienced, but it can go for both ways kind of thing. So we can recognize um, a sound of a particular musical instrument no matter what tune is being played on. So it's like, oh, maybe I don't know that tune, that song, but I know that instrument. Um, so we can always recognize the tune no matter what instrument is playing it is the other way as well. It's like, oh, yeah, no matter what, what that is, Oz, I got this. Um, so it kind of can go both ways in that regard. Um, and this pattern of recognition indicates that a single item of information may be indexed under several different headings and can be reached different ways. So a person uh, features, for instance, if you're looking at someone, 
uh, they might be linked to a different amounts of categories. So the more categories, the more features are filled in, the more easily one can be retrieved and you recognize someone. It's like, oh, I recognize their chin, uh, the sound of their voice. Um, you know, they have a fragrance about them. You know, like all these different things are indexed for someone. It's going to be recognized easier kind of thing. And that brings us to our next one, recall. And this is memory retrieval in which a person reconstructs previously learned material. And this is um, the, the act of reconstruction of information. And you kind of kind of think about it of like recalls involved with like, um, think about it like a simple conversation you're having. All right, you have to recall hundreds and hundreds of different, different words when you're talking with someone. And you're going back to the storehouse of your memory to kind of recreate everything and figure out what these words mean and everything. So you're recalling all this information. So there's remembering it's an active process and it's guided by experiences, knowledge, and different cues that we receive from the environment, or in this case, a person talking. But it also can be environmental. And that kind of um, builds on this reconstructive process because recall is influenced by this reconstructive process. So our memories sometimes can get altered or distorted uh, depending on experiences, attitudes, and inf um, interferences that are going on from other information. And we see this sometimes, it's called confabulation. And that's when a person remembers information that was never really stored in memory. Um, if our reconstruction of an event is incomplete, sometimes our brain kind of fills in the gaps of what was missing. And uh, sometimes we do this and we don't even realize we're doing it and it's wrong. Uh, but so um, if you've ever been around someone telling a story and you were there where the story took place and you're listening to them, you're like, man, I was there and I don't remember any of that. So that can happen with confabulation. All right. Now here's a throwback word for us. We've talked about in past podcast schemas. And these are our conceptual frameworks um, that we use to make sense of the world. So we talked about gender schemas before, just schemas in general about items and stuff. So these are set expectations about something that is based on past experiences. So the definition doesn't really change. Uh, we're just using it in a memory context kind of thing. So anyhow, it can still happen with us. We just have an idea of how things are going to be because we've learned it before. It's part of our memory. And we've talked before and it really just means the same stuff. All right, another one for you here. Identic, identic memory. Sorry, my pronunciation's terrible today. Um, this is like photographic memory, and it's um, very, very few people have this. Um, it involves the ability to like form sharp visual images after examining a picture or a page for a very short period of time, and then they can recall it uh, at a later time, like the entire image, the entire event, and so forth, just very, very vividly. Now, not all of us have that. Very, very few adults have that one. But uh, this one we can get a little bit easier, and that is state-dependent learning. So I always think of like, oh, my state of being or where I am kind of thing. And this occurs when you can recall information easily when you're in the same psychological or emotional state or setting as you were when you originally encoded the information. So uh, if you ever remember in school, uh, people tell you to, you know, study for the test in the same way, uh, same classroom or the same setting that you're going to take the test. And so if you learned everything in one seat, you probably want to take the test in that same seat kind of thing. All right. And then we also have relearning. So this is um, declarative and procedural memory kind of goes into this. And... Um, 
you're like for instance you're you're supposed to learn a poem as a child all right and you get it down kind of thing then years years later someone says uh, you haven't rehearsed it during this time someone says hey do you know it like, ah i don't really know it but then you study it again and it's like wow i picked that up really quick well that's because you still have some knowledge kind of hanging on from earlier and so this is called relearning where you're benefiting from earlier learning now, sometimes you can't remember something from earlier. It's completely gone, and we call this decay. This is part of forgetting. So decay means the fading away of memories over time. And, um, you know, sensory uh, storage and short-term memory, those ones decay pretty quickly. Um, now, long-term memory, um, we're not really certain that they ever truly decay, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Now, these memories that we do have and we do keep around, sometimes we run into interference and we might have blockages of memory um, because of previous subsequent, uh, subsequent, subsequent memories or uh, loss of retrieval ability, uh, different cues that would help us. And there's usually two types of things that are blocking us. We have proactive interference. An earlier memory blocks you from remembering later information or retroactive interference, later memories, or new information blocks you from remembering information you learned earlier. And I know this is a little tough to understand, so I'm going to give you guys some examples here. So, for instance, you move to a new home. All right, so you now have to remember a new address or a new phone number kind of thing. At first, you have trouble remembering them because the memory of your old address and old phone number get in the way. You can't remember the new one because you keep thinking about your old one. That's proactive. All right, now... Um, when the, the year changes, um, uh, no, I'm not going to use that one. But later on, um, you get information. You might have trouble recalling the old information. Now, all I remember is my new address. I can't remember my old one kind of thing. So those are just some quick examples. Now, there can be some other pretty severe interference. Um, amnesia. And that is a loss of memory that may occur after a head injury, um, a brain damage, um, and it also can come from drug use or severe psychological stress as well. And we mentioned earlier that we can, you know, hold on to memories by rehearsing them and so forth. So I want to talk about some ways to kind of hold on to these to keep away from interference. And one of them is elaborative rehearsal. And this is uh, the attempt to link new information uh, to material you've already learned. So, for instance, if I tell you, hey, I want you to remember these letters... D-F-I-R-N-E. Okay, uh, well, how about I rearrange those letters and put it into something I know already, like the word friend. So you can remember things more vividly if you associate them with things you, you've already stored. So like, for instance, emotional experiences. If you can uh, establish an emotion with something, you're going to remember it better. And the more categories of a memory you can index them in and different areas like associate it with, it is easier to remember them. So more senses, more experiences you can link, the easier it is to retrieve it, hopefully, later on. Um, now, another good way to protect a memory from interferences is to overlearn it. Uh, so just keep rehearsing it all the time. And you just keep learning this and over and over and over, and eventually it just becomes kind of stuck there. Um, so, um, and you'd also, you don't want to learn um, similar material at the same time. That can also hurt because they interfere with one another. They kind of overlap. So if you're studying for history and uh, political science, that's probably not good because they're so similar. So how about we do history, 
biology, then political science. If you separate them enough, uh, they won't overlap too much. And we are kind of winding down here, so um, I know I'm, uh, I'm getting a little bit long on time. I like to stop here at 20 minutes, which we just hit, but uh, I'm going to go just a little bit longer because I don't have much left, so I apologize. It's going to be a little longer today. Um, so, but anyhow, devices for remembering things. Um, so techniques for using um, association to memorize information, and these are called mnemonic devices. So different ways to help remember things, giving like a little story to it or something. So like the ancient Greeks, for example, memorized speeches by mentally walking around their homes or neighborhoods and associating each line of a speech with different locations and spots. They called this method loci. Um, now speaking of associating these, mental pictures is another one. And this is where you use mental imagery or a story to help remember things. So... Um, you know, kind of one here. Uh, I use my very educated mother just served us nine pizzas. I use those to remember the planets, and I say pizzas with a little bit of uh, angst in my voice because I'm upset that um, Pluto is no longer a planet. I grew up with Pluto as a planet, and I get a little upset about that one. Um, if you were to memorize the presidents of the United States, um, this would be uh, you. You could come up with a whole story about. Uh, how a washing machine, and then, uh, you know, that would be like the beginning of it, and like this washing machine, and then, you know, go on to the next, and next, next, and next president, and you kind of find ways to like weave it into a bit of a story. All right, and my last little bit for you guys, uh, I'm going to talk about some memory aids, and then maybe how you can use, um, use some of this stuff to help you out. So um, our last one here, memory aids, I guess before notes, is just little things that we do to help uh, remember things. Maybe tying a string around your finger, writing notes on your hand, um, using different touch points on your on your on your palm, and touching things and like touching your uh, middle finger to your palm and saying one thing, so you'll remember whenever you touch your middle finger to your palm. It helps you remember that one thing. So whatever you use to help jog your memory. And the last little bit here is how you can maybe apply this. And when it comes to taking notes. Uh, this is a school thing, a life thing, whatever you're taking notes about, take your own notes, please, please, please. You can always copy notes from a friend and stuff, but just that act of taking it on your own um, makes just such a world of difference because it you have ownership in it and it is yours. And um, when you review your own notes, you do better than those who do not. And that is just, you know, that's a school thing, a life thing kind of thing. So, um, you know, you review your notes within a day or two. It helps you to cut down the amount of information you're not cramming because you're just doing a little bit, and then you won't have to relearn as much because you're spreading it out over a couple of days. Um, and when you review your notes, it will help you to find uh, what's important as well because you know it's summarized in one area and your textbook's a lot longer. Um, then you have to summarize your notes in your own words. That helps out a lot as well because you have you can't truly understand something if you can't uh, you know make it simple for someone else. And you're doing a lot of practicing and rehearsing the entire time. Um, and this is, leads to overlearning. You got it too much. When you have overlearned something, you have shown mastery of whatever that is. So, anyhow, gang, we're going to stop there for today. I hope you have. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Have a wonderful rest of the day.